Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of Global Conversations. My name is Andre Darmanin, and I have here for the very first time Priya Rateja, where she is finally joining us as part of this uh, as part of this webcast. So, hello to you, Priya. Hi, Andre. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Don't sound too enthused over there, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so Thank yeah, you. so no, I, I you know I uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, when I had the initial conversation with Priya, you know she brings a different perspective to this uh, to this conversation, and uh, you know go ahead and uh, look at our initial conversation from a few weeks ago. Uh, that talked to that where we had a just a fluid conversation on who we are and uh, you know what she brings to the table in terms of this uh, in terms of this webcast. So I'm happy that she's uh, actually joined us today and uh, adding to the conversation that we have. So today's conversation here will be talking about uh, global EDI, but more so in terms of looking at EDI from a global context uh, with respect to cultural humility, cultural intelligence. And any other types of uh, any other issues that are uh, that are related, and you know, this conversation is going to be free flowing amongst the three of us, um, actually the four of us, I should say, and um, and yeah. So before anything, I just want to uh, start off by mentioning that it, you know, my guests here are, you know, I've known them for quite some time, and they are they bring a wealth of experience in terms of global EDI. And EDI is in general, whether it's from, you know, whether being here in North America or in uh, or in Europe. Uh, and so, you know, so this is where, you know, this is where we're going to have this candid conversation of, you know, where we are at in terms of uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and what needs to change, what improvements, uh, you know, and what challenges there are in terms of in terms of doing this work um, and so whatnot. So I just want to uh, introduce uh, Jai Saxena, Diakana, and Amri Johnson. So with that, let's uh, let's start this uh, let's start this show. And uh, first, I want to uh, start off with uh, a land acknowledgement, uh, recognizing the land that we are on here in North America. Um, so Priya will uh, go ahead with that to start. Okay, so thank you for that, um, Andre, and thank you for inviting me and having me start today. Um, so I'm going to start with the land acknowledgement, and as I am situated and we are situated here, uh, basically based in Toronto, um, I will start off uh, with the land acknowledgement, acknowledging Indigenous nations um, across North America, but also here in Toronto. Um, so we recognize that many Indigenous nations have long-standing relationships with the territories upon which we are all located, and we want to acknowledge our presence on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations. The area known as Tecoronto has been taken care of by the Anishinaabek Nation, the Haudenosaunee, sorry, my apologies, the Haudenosaunee, today is one of those days, sorry. The Haudenosaunee, you could say it. Haudenosaunee. Yeah, it's okay. It's just one of those days today. I'm so sorry. They're That's okay. No worries. No worries. <laughs> the Huron, Wendat, and the Wyandotte uh, nations. It is now home to many First Nation, Inuit, and Métis communities. We acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Uh, this territory is subject of the Dish and One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant and agreement to peacefully share and care for the Great Lakes region. 
All right. Thank you so, very much. Uh, sorry. No, I was just going to apologize. It's just one of those days today where <laughs> I'm okay. uh, not okay. able to pronounce things very well. I think even my name. It's one of those days today, so I I do apologize it's okay. from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We uh we're all we're all good here, and uh, <laughs> thank you for that, Priya. I really appreciate that uh, land acknowledgement, and uh yeah. So let's uh let's get this started here. Um, so first of all, let's uh let everyone introduce themselves. I want everyone to just talk about you know who you are, uh, what your experience is, and and why did you. Or how did you get into uh, equity, diversity, inclusion work? So, uh, I want to start off with uh, Dia. Let's. Uh, I mean, D and I. Uh, D and I. It's. It sounds like D and I itself, but uh, you know, D and I are. You know, we've we go back a little ways. Um, you know, especially in the in the uh, DEI in the workplace course that you had taught, which was an excellent course, and uh, I learned a lot from you. And then after that, we just decided to partner in many other ways, um, you know, in terms of extending the conversation. So, so Dia, and of course, you know, we're both Canadian to a certain extent, although you're living in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. and you have an international background. So, you know, without further ado, Dia, um, go ahead, tell tell everyone about yourself and why, or how did you get into uh, uh, EDI work? Thank you so much, Andre, and so happy to be in company with you all today in this conversation. I have been in DEI for a number of years, um, and my focus is really on cultural intelligence, cultural humility. It's been informed very much by my personal background. I was born in Singapore, interestingly enough, as a Canadian citizen. So right away, that lens was there about, oh, it's interesting how you can be born somewhere and not necessarily have that birthright. Uh, raised in Canada, and my family is from India. My mother was actually raised in Iran and in Italy. Uh, my family met, um, lived in Lebanon, and then from there, I have myself lived in Germany and Japan. So that has really informed my experiences. I'm um, a woman of color. I'm it, it's South Asian by descent. My husband's from Kenya, uh, but I'm also a number of different identities. I'm a mother. I'm a Masi, which means an aunt to two little boys. So all of these inform my experiences. My background is in journalism and in education, and these are both institutions. And as I got into them, I learned that it's important to break down barriers and create opportunities for people from a number of different groups, marginalized it all different from all different parts of the world. And that has really led me to say, hey, let's do this work from a global lens. How can we learn from each other? How can we get into a partnership where we're informing each other about our perspectives so that we can tackle our, our challenges, global challenges in a different way than we're doing right now. So thank you and would love to pass it on to the both of you to introduce yourselves as well. Uh, Jaya. Thanks so much, Andre and Priya, and it's so fun uh, learning about the, the rest of you. So, Dia, thank you for sharing that. Um, a little bit about myself. So, personally, um, I am also South Asian. Uh, my parents having immigrated from India in the 70s, um, sort of like the quintessential immigrant story. Uh, I am live right outside Washington, D.C. So I was, I grew up in the area, in the DMV area, 
Um, I, as, as the daughter of immigrant parents, I think I, I really sort of watched their experience uh, navigating their own lives um, and dual duality in, in cultures and this whole notion of sort of the per perpetual foreigner that I think we often talk about and hear about. Um, I'm all, and that, as Thea mentioned, that has certainly influenced my worldview and how I approach uh, the work of uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I am also a mother. I have two young daughters, ages five and nine. Um, in terms of my professional journey, I am a lawyer by training. Uh, for the past 15 to 20 years, I've worked in a number of different settings, um, at least the past six or seven of which have been in uh, the EDI space, uh, first in higher education, and then more recently in a variety of professional services firms. So starting with a global law firm, moving on to a global economic consulting firm, and currently at a global executive search and leadership development firm. And like many others, I would imagine uh, my path wasn't planned in this way. Um, I think a lot of those of us who, who are um, EDI practitioners sort of come to this work um, a variety of ways. And I think my path and story demonstrates that we come to this work from all sorts of backgrounds um, and certainly not linear by any means. Um, so that's a little bit about me. And I'm, I'm, I've really appreciated working in global contexts, um, particularly because, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, um, here in the United States, oftentimes we do talk about these issues given our own historical context here. And it's been really fascinating uh, for me over the years to learn about how these issues surface elsewhere in the world. Thank you. Amri, go ahead. Hi, Andre Priya, Jaya, Dia. Thank you for the opportunity to be in dialogue with you. Um, my, as uh, Andre said, my name is Omri Johnson. I was uh, born and raised in Topeka, Kansas, um, educated in Atlanta. Um, so I moved when I left Kansas, um, I went to Atlanta. Um, my parents are, my father was a business owner. He's actually, a, he was an undertaker. Um, so I, I learned a lot about just humanity from my dad because he dealt with people in some of the most difficult times. And by the nature of our community, he dealt with people from everywhere. And sometimes in ways that he wasn't comfortable that I had to watch him go through the process of being comfortable during the kind of the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic and how his Christian upbringing had to have him reframe how he engaged with the LGBT, uh, particularly the, the, the gay community. Um, so that was a learning. My mom is an educator, PhD educated, and has worked in you know education institutions of higher learning. And my both of my family members, uh, our, our family has a history of entrepreneurship all the way back to uh, to Tulsa, uh, Black Tulsa in the 1900s, where my family had businesses, uh, not necessarily in Tulsa, but just south, where uh, there's some quite interesting stories that I, I won't put on here. Uh, but uh, my family was really adept at protecting their their uh, their assets. <laughs> and so that had to happen quite a bit. And so um, I moved from Topeka, went to college at Morehouse College and and uh, then went to public health school. I got inspired by a public health professional, an epidemiologist named Bill Jenkins, got wanted to really get into public health and population based health. 
And so uh, I started, thought I wanted to be a physician. I ended up as an epidemiologist. It was a good move. It kind of synthesized my propensity for both the art and science, um, both humanities and the and the sciences. And so I I started off my public my my DE and I career um, really with that lens because I was looking at health equity and health disparities. So a lot of my work, you know, early cultural competence stuff was really informed by my the fact that I'd been doing public health on, on a, in a lot of, lot of different settings from from firearm intentional firearm industry and in, in um, injury and homicide all the way through infectious diseases so it was kind of went in with this lens that hey you know disparities are real we need to address them where are there positive things happening versus us always focusing on the on the deficiencies and how can we ask different questions to create health equity and and be causing the matter in our communities, not necessarily waiting for somebody to take that on. So it was a lot of population-based work that I was doing in the health equity space. I ended up meeting Howard Ross, who was the founder of Cook Ross, that's now been transitioned uh, to a new a new firm. But Howard was an early mentor. I was a partner at Cook Ross for a few years um, and then got recruited to go to Novartis. And uh, while I was at Novartis the, at the research division based in Cambridge, uh, not the Cambridge here on this side of the pond, but the uh, on the other side, I, um, I, you know, I, I uh, got a chance to do the kind of DE&I work that I always wanted to do, experiment with a lot of things. We had budget, we had lots of support, we had a lot of engagement with leadership at, at all levels. And we got to really put this in a package that I think could create change and get enough momentum for the people to do the work, not just the office of, of ED&I at the time is what we were called. So that to me was my entree into seeing how you can do this systemically um, and think systemically about it. And so that was that was really powerful. So I was at Novartis about nine years. Um, while I was there, I met my wife who was born and raised in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. Um, we decided we wanted to have a baby. It happened pretty fast, and therefore I had to move. Couldn't really do baby rearing over Zoom. So I moved to, uh, to Basel, Switzerland, where I live now. Um, uh, after I left the company, I took about a year of parental leave, um, started writing a book, started a company, um, and uh, now here running Inclusion Wins. Uh, based in Basel and uh, doing ED&I work with companies uh, on, on, on multiple continents. These are excellent stories to uh, to get us started. I mean, just just listening to to everyone's journeys and to how they got into this work is just amazing. We always hear about these these great stories and and how they how it influences uh, how they work, where they work, and what they do. And 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 I really appreciate hearing that. So. Uh, so with that, I'm going to uh, hand it off to Priya so that she'll start the conversation amongst everybody. So Priya, floor is yours. Thank you. So um, it was really actually for me to, to hear so much about your powerful stories, about your journeys, and really uh, constantly hearing about systemically and uh, institutions and hearing about how much that was woven into your experiences and how you sort of made your way into um, into the work that you've been doing. So I guess the first question that I kind of have for you all is, what do you see, especially with our conversation around um, you know local to global? 
Um, what do you see as the main differences between local, uh, global, and uh, global EDI? Yeah, I'm happy. I'm just throwing out to to everybody. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I was I was just gonna kick off the conversation. I see global as a as a mindset. I think that it's something that we can adapt and learn and and really bring into the work that we do. Uh, but we should never overlook the local. And even being in the U.S., that's a learning I've had. Uh, having been raised in Canada, there's often been a narrative that the U.S. is like this. And you come here and there's such stark differences between different parts of the U.S. So without that local, we can fall into a habit of oversimplifying our perceptions of just the natural complexities that we face and, and the amazing things that come out of those complexities. So I think we need that combination thereof. And that's where I lean into the approach of being global, which is global is the umbrella. And then local is, is we want to make sure that we, we hold on to that localization of each place and what makes it so unique and special. Yeah. And I would build off of that. I mean, literally, when we think of the word local, it really is uh, the merging global and local. I mean, quite simply. And so I think along those lines of what you said, the I think of it as localizing the global. Right. So when we think about diversity, equity and inclusion, I would uh, hope that any global strategy is really underpinned by local or regional um, strategies to maximize impact. Really this idea that um, there's a lot to, we really want to approach this work in a sort of locally and culturally conscious and nuanced way. Um, and I think we have seen that play out in recent years, particularly around things like anti-Black racism and how that has shown up here in the United States, but also how those issues have surfaced elsewhere in the world. So I, I completely agree that it's taking this, making the global knowledge local um, in a way. So I, I think this whole terminology of global is really important when thinking about building DEI strategy. Yeah, I, I, I resonate with everything that was said. I think everything is contextual. And I think when we focus more or have a better understanding of context instead of just content, I think we we allow ourselves to be free to understand that whatever the context is, it's, everything is local. I think, we, I think somebody said all politics is local, all DEI is local too. And I like the way you framed it, Dia. It is a mindset um, mm -hmm. because if you don't have that, kind of broader context is just things that you naturally miss. And so what we're trying to do is make sure we don't miss, make sure we can take those perspectives into play. And when we're working in companies, that's particularly important because we need to take that um, into account. And that there was that great resource that if folks haven't seen it, the HBR article that I think we've all seen about, um, I think it's called Do Your Global Teams CD&I as an American Issue. There were just a lot of really great insights in that article, and I would encourage others to take a look at that if they haven't already. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. Actually, that leads into my next question, where we can dive in a little bit into that into that conversation on on why. Uh, some global EDI firms look at uh, EDI as an American issue and are focused on that. Now, you know, sometimes we talk about it because of because of the, the general nature of the U.S. Everyone looks to the U.S. Everyone looks to the West. 
everyone sees what goes on, um, you know, from 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 death to 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 racism to all that, and then they all take it in themselves. So, you know, so that becomes an, an issue for a lot of these organizations, whether they're global EDI organizations uh, in North America or global uh, organizations uh, across the pond or um, or in Australia or whatnot. So. So how do we how do we end up changing this conversation and and you know how do we also and I want to add to that too is how do we bring that uh, humanity perspective uh, to the conversation um, you know um, I, that, that's obviously something that that Amri had, had talked about uh, first um, you know at the begin at the outset so um, Amri I want to I want to let you kick it off in terms of in terms of that and then we'll pass the baton to everyone else to, for their perspectives. Sure. Yeah, my son uh, gave us a little visit. So if you see his head pop through my <laughs> through my screen, uh, that that's what you saw. Um, you know, I think I, I like to say that humanity is the superset, and our identities are the subset. Our identities are so complex that they contextualize us, and and if we don't really fully bring that to light, what it will seem as if to a lot of people is if DEI is for somebody else for them. And so there's a lot of conversation about, you know, centering um, the marginalized. And that's something that I, I, I totally agree with, but we, we don't want to center anybody by themselves. We want to center us all in our humanity. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about community, we're talking about bringing those marginalized perspectives to the center, but not for them to exist in the center alone. And I think sometimes the way we framed it since the murder of George Floyd you know, has made it seem like this is for a particular group. Is it consist of multiple groups? Yes, but it's not for one group, it's for everyone. So when you, when I talk about, and even in the subtitle of my book, I talk about DEI being accessible, actionable, and sustainable. Accessible means it has to be, this paradigm has to be accessible to everyone, or it can't create any kind of real dialogue or change that 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 all organizational transformation comes through is that dialogue everybody has to have access to it everyone has to be a part of it but the the actionable part is is it been unambiguously prioritized and it can't be if people don't believe that it's accessible to them and it definitely can't be sustainable because the more you remove it from everyone and remove it from our complete humanity you 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 miss the opportunity to align it with purpose because people don't feel like their purpose or the organizational purpose aligns with what DEI is all about, and you miss what the what I consider the transformational potential of the work. And so, you know, yes, humanity has to be centered. That doesn't mean it's somebody else's humanity. There is no somebody else's humanity. This is, as uh, you y'all know that I'm a rap fan. This is. You know, there's nothing like a G thing uh, we're in DEI. It's nothing but a we thing. Um, and that's the that's what we need to take into the conversation is this is about we. It's it's not about us or them. Uh, and uh, Dia, um, you know, when you forwarded that article or sent it out, um, uh, the HBR article, um, you know, it, it, it brought to mind a few things uh, in terms of how we bring this work into context from uh, looking at it from, from the cultural side of things. And one of the things that you had mentioned, which, which uh, a lot of it has, uh, has some context to this is, you know, when you talk about the caste system, 
right? And, and how that plays into what we do. And that's, that's that humanity part, but also to the cultural aspect of it, of, you know, how it plays out, especially in the tech industry where tech is global, um, you know, but also at the same time, there is that local perspective. So, um, you know, that's something I, I want to touch on, especially when we're, when, you know, going off of, uh, going off of the conversation here with from Amory, um, tell us you know your experiences and tell us also too, in terms of you know what you, why this is something that we should talk about when we're uh, when we're talking about humanity in, in in this space. Yeah, quite simply, when we talk about humanity, to add to Amory's point, it's about the duality and even the multiplicity of our identities. So, looking in the context of the caste system, which was a system that has been abolished in India, there are still residual impacts of this. And what I mean by that is the things that may not be explicitly out there, but some of you may have seen this pyramid of white supremacy. There's a lot, there's, sorry, there's not as much that we see overtly on the top. It's what you see underneath. It's what's embedded in our systems and policies and practices. And the caste system is an example of something where through perhaps a US lens, we may say, oh, okay, we don't have the same issues or challenges abroad, absolutely. But what it looks like is a completely different conversation. And we can't always gauge everything by what we hear or talk about explicitly. Often, Amory, to your point, when you're living elsewhere, your senses are turned on all the time, you notice, how you are approached, how others are approached, all these different nuances. They say 80% of communication is nonverbal. So I encourage us to look at what is happening in different parts of the world, not only through the lens of what we hear about in the media or what's front and center in conversations, but often what people are not talking about explicitly and what is happening in the undercurrents, perhaps in people's homes, at people's dinner tables, in how people are treated on a day-to-day -day basis and believe people when they tell you. So bringing in that complexity, we're not all speaking from one perspective. I, I myself, I'm not speaking from a South Asian perspective. I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody who has parents who are South Asian and has those roots, but was brought up in Canada. So it's that duality. And when I notice something and I share it, Let's give merit to that. Let's listen to it. Bring in the humanization by believing people's lived experiences and not trying to solve for it right away, starting with understanding it, creating that dialogue. Jaya. Yeah, I mean, what you just said, the, the last part just makes me think about, um, I think it was Brene Brown who might have said, you know, the importance of listening to understand and not to answer. Um, which is really profound to me because I think a lot of times when we are in conversation with others, we are really listening to respond or to provide a solution or to enhance or to answer versus actually trying to understand. I mean, the thing, the two additional points that come to mind for me, um, one is just around the need to begin with our own selves um, in thinking about this work and relating to other individuals. So really learning about different cultures. Um, and I think this relates to probably what we'll talk about in a little bit um, regarding cultural humility, but really being curious and lear learning um, from a very personal level around uh, about others. 
Um, the other point that comes to mind for me is around the power of storytelling. When you were talking, Thea, about listening to others and believing their experiences, and I think storytelling um, is really uh, a powerful transformative tool and can help change the narrative when we think about um, how we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion and those these issues. So those two in particular, um, I think starting with the self and really um, recognizing the power of our lived stories and experiences is really important. So just in talking about all this, one of the things that is really coming to mind and sort of brings me to sort of the next question that I kind of had. Um, it looks like there's been some sort of shift in transition, uh, especially when you were talking from, you know, local, global to global and talking about storytelling and talking from that place of experience. Um, it seems like there's been that sort of movement and shift. So when you're talking about cultural competency to cultural humility and cultural intelligence, especially in a global in a global context, can you can you just uh, talk a little bit more about that movement um, and how it's most effective? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to share that uh, there's been a shift. So we know the importance of cultural intelligence. We have uh, IQ. Arguably, you know, it's not the necessarily the most effective or fair, equitable way to gauge intelligence. But if we look at intelligence, we have IQ, EQ, emotional intelligence, and CQ, which is cultural intelligence, and the latter two can be developed with time and just with exposure to different experiences, adapting our mindsets. Uh, when we talk about cultural intelligence, we're seeing a shift within the DEI space from cultural competence, which is framed as knowing and sharing and, and very often what we find in formal institutions towards um, an, a practice of cultural humility, where we ask questions and we mm -hmm. come to terms with um, the idea that we'll never fully know everything, nor should we, because cultures themselves are evolving. That's a very interesting learning that I've had, is that as a South Asian woman, sometimes I go back to India very often. And when I go back, my perception of what I left or what my family left has itself adapted. And so what we practice sometimes in enclaves here in Canada or in Toronto is very different than what we see in India because this is shifting, this is shifting the duality, you know, the multi, just the, the multinationality of everything, the diaspora of people leaving or people being taken has shifted how, what we held on to initially, what our beliefs of what we held on to initially. So I encourage us to, to look at that through the framework of cultural humility. What I believe that truly does is it shifts the conversation, again, to Amri's earlier point from this being just one group or the other group towards we, and we're all taking a part in that conversation, and it becomes a dialogue instead of somebody telling or teaching one another about something that's actually so complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a lot of the cultural humility conversation came out of healthcare. So mm -hmm. it was it was a space where I think it was two physician scientists that brought it to the fore. And so they had actually seen it in practice where we had, I remember when I was at Cook Ross, we we developed a, um, you know, a whole curriculum about various aspects of healthcare beliefs from different cultures. 
So in a way, they they were somewhat stereotypical, but they the thing of you know you probably heard from um, from uh, Chimamanda Adichie that stereotypes are not untrue; they're just incomplete. And so what what cultural humility does is it allows us to see the incomplete nature of our perspectives at any particular point in time. And when it comes to healthcare, health healthcare equity, you, you need to be able to know that th those ideas are things that could be tested as a potential hypothesis, but they're not the truth with a capital T. And so I think that's where I'm, I've always really gravitated and, and appreciated the, the distinction um, that you do need to have some competence and some 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 theories to go off of, but those theories don't make uh, a group monolithic and don't necessarily make everybody uh, adhere to to those to those ideas full stop. And I, I think it's also the challenge that I sometimes have with the notion of lived experiences, because what we've done over the past couple of years is people have said their lived experiences and said, if you challenge them, you're racist. If you challenge some of these notions, if you bring any data to the table, you're racist. And or maybe I'm not racist, maybe I'm non-racist if I challenge them because I'm black, but I'm not so sure because they used to say that you couldn't be a racist if you were black, but now some people say that that's not true. So we we have a lot of different theories around that. But I, I think, you know, sometimes when we think about lived experiences and we hear them from people that might have a, a particular view. And in the ED&I community, that view has been um, you know, re relatively deeply progressive, but not necessarily considering the perspectives that might be counter to it. Um, mm -hmm. We haven't really allowed and brought in the level of dissent in our space that we need to. And right now, the dissent is coming from the outside instead of us challenging each other. Um, as practitioners to the extent that we can. And so now we're reacting to another set of dissenters that seem to disagree with some of the things that we've brought to the fore. So I think where we are is, is where, you know, we have to have that cultural humility. We have to not lump all groups into a monolithic notion. Um, and, and it doesn't matter what their lived experience is. When one person says it, that's that individual's lived experience. It might mm -hmm. relate to somebody else, but it also almost definitely has a contrast. I'm a black man living in Switzerland. And before I got here, I was wildly privileged. And when I got here, I'm still wildly privileged. And so my my narrative, have I experienced racism? Yeah, but generally I've been extremely blessed. Don't even feel like I'm fully like worthy of it. I've been so blessed. And I'm not just talking about financially. I just have really robust and rich relationships that make me have joy in my life. And that is a blessing, right? So I, I think, you know, I, I'm just, I'm in this space now as practitioners. I think we, we need to be really mindful of our own cultural humility, understanding some of the distinctions and not necessarily following a, a particular gospel of, of what the, the predominant conversation is around anti-racism or racism or or caste or whatever it might be, I think we should look at all of it and we should always be mindful and discerning to see if there's any distinctions or perspectives that we don't have around the table that might give mm -hmm. us a, a different level of context and allow us to use our perspective taking in, in a way that doesn't end up creating a bunch of you know vapid responses like that of, of some of the politicians that have come to the fore over the past few months. Yeah. Uh, before Jay, I just I just have a follow up or <clears throat> just a little comment. I mean, you you 
talk about this in your in your in your book in terms of intersectionality, uh, as you title it, the good, bad, the ugly, and the good, and that's kind of what you're referring to here, right? In terms of in terms of all that. So, um, can you can you elaborate on on that chapter? Why you know that's obviously one when we talk about um, talk about this context, but as well as uh, you know as you dive deeper into you know what cultural intelligence is. Um, Talk about that and and maybe the 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 good, the bad, the ugly, as you say, and the good of intersectionality um, with respect to the work that we do. Yeah, as conceptually, I don't think there's very many people who would disagree that we're multidimensional beings, that we're not kind of a single story, so to speak. I'm going back to Adichie. <laughs> um, we're, we're more than that, right? And so it, because we're more than that, I think it's important to know that even the intersectionality of Kimberly Crenshaw was not intersectionality conceptually as a as a one idea. There were researchers doing work in the space of what we now call intersectionality before Kimberly Crenshaw. She coined this phrase and we've taken it. And a lot of hers has been about the intersection of, of gender and race and sexuality. But if we really want to use the intersectionality, I think at the next level, it's not to look at multiple levels of oppression in uh, in what I consider a generative sense. I don't think that that serves us. And so that's the bad. And the ugly is we have been doing that. There's actually, in, I talk about in the book, an intersectionality score calculator. You think it's tr You think it's a joke, but it's actually out there. It's a satire website that was put together for people to actually go and see how oppressed they are. So if I list on there that I'm very Jewish and very Muslim and very gay, I'm going to have a lower oppression score than somebody who's uh, an English speaker from America or from whatever, from the UK um, that, uh, that, um, that went to college. So they, they talk about these distinctions in intersectionality score. I think that's the silliest thing I could ever imagine, but it was a satire website, but you can't imagine how pissed off people were when they used it. And so that notion in and of itself, because we haven't really created a real robust conversation about the distinctions of similarities and difference in their respective tensions and complexity. That's how I defined diversity, a la um, Dr. Roosevelt Thomas. Um, uh, we, we, we miss the, the transformative potential of it. If we wanted to make it as the good, we talk about intersectionality as this concept that doesn't necessarily exclude somebody who doesn't come from what we consider a privileged background, because that in and of itself is an incomplete notion. Now, I'll have people that are, that'll disagree with me about that, but is it serving us? Is it moving the work forward? Is it creating more vapid attacks? Or is it helping us move into organizations and make this work uh, really center to the cultural transformation that I think most organizations want to be a part of? And so it's, it's, it's not a slinging a critique, intersectionality bad. It's saying, what can intersectionality be? What's the possibility that we want to create for engaging in dynamics and conversations around intersectionality or multidimensionality, not making these distinctions because, you know, the language that we use as the EDI class of people um, wants to hold on to it. But can we create something that's 
that's absolutely accessible and that people can be like, wow, that's a concept that I could get behind. I understand that we can be in solidarity around that versus in conflict um, perpetually. We can work through the tensions. We can do that. We can learn to, to be beacons for dissent. We can do all that, but we can't do that if we're holding a term um, in a way that lumps everybody together or doesn't like, allow the transformative potential to be manifest. Thanks. Uh, you know, Jay, I, I, you know, I want, I'd like you to add to this, but also too, I want to ask the question. And I mean, anyone can jump in on this too, but I, you know, I want you to, to start here. One of the things that I, that I tend to see is that, especially, I mean, I know online is, is a, you know, it's a very small portion of, of the work that we do or, you know, but why are people still still holding on to cultural competence is this just mm -hmm. laziness or is it just the fact that people are just you know what i mean it just that's a thing that that is dumbfounding right it's just you know why are people still holding on to that and um and yeah and then you know too like i mean if there's anything you want to add to what's been said to this point by by da and Amory, i mean go right ahead yeah no that's a that's an interesting question um Andre, and I, I first want to step back and, and just take a step back thinking about the original question around cultural competence versus humility versus intelligence. And one of the things that, ha that I was jotting down as I was listening to everyone is the reality that we are all on our own learning journey. And even those of us who are practitioners and who've been doing this work, um, the, the whole notion of cultural competence and this idea that I am the expert, I am the expert on every culture, I can master every culture, there is a finite point to my learning, all of that is, is very much antiquated. I mean, these were terms that were commonly used in the past to suggest some sort of social fluency, but I, I mean, I would be curious as we talk about this, if, if others on this call are still seeing a huge or significant interest or emphasis rather on cultural competence. And I think you, Thea, talked about the paradigm shift and really shifting to this sort of cultural humility, being curious and open-minded and asking questions and not being the expert, and also the idea of building skills through cultural intelligence. So it's interesting because oftentimes we, who are those of us who are DEI practitioners are referred to as experts in this space. And I always struggle with that term because to me, I am also on my own learning journey, right? And so I think a lot of times folks will say, well, you've been doing this work, you're the expert. And I understand what they're saying. There's a certain degree of knowledge, skill set, subject matter expertise that those of us who do this work may have. But it's interesting because I, I really do come at this work from that place of humility and um, and trying to better understand. Um, so I'm curious about your, your you know, I've, I've certainly worked in workplaces where cultural competency is still discussed and addressed, but as somebody who is part of a global DE&I function, I would hope that we are changing the conversation in our workplaces. Um, I am curious to hear, though, especially across regions, if the idea of cultural competence sort of um, dominates um, or is more widely discussed than the latter two. But in my experience, to the extent I have the ability to, I am trying to shift the conversation. I was just gonna quickly just say, when I was hearing everybody talk, uh, especially around uh, when I hear cultural competence and I have my own sort of reaction to it. Um, but I, I guess the question that comes to mind immediately for me is, 
like who is saying cultural competence or who is asking for cultural competence. So that's the first thing that sort of comes to mind for me. Um, but just in, in terms of, of looking at, um, you know, all of these, all of these sort of um, areas in terms of from confidence to humility and culture and cultural intelligence and what we talked about in terms of uh, global EDI and what you've what you've talked about in terms of how you practice, um, how you know we're looking at um, our tendencies to focus on one or another um, and how that's sort of evolved and that's changed. I guess uh, what I'd like to kind of shift towards is what are some takeaways um, for equity practitioners and leaders um, just to determine if they want to transition to um, you know, a global organization. I think that would be something that would be maybe very important for, for people or listeners to hear. Jay, if you want to start. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I, so I, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've been working in global organizations for six, seven years. Um, so, you know, I think part of it is a lot of what we've already discussed related to cultural humility and cultural intelligence. And really, I think part of what gives me a lot of hope in when we talk about these things is that these are things to some extent, some of these skills can be learned. I mean, when we look at cultural intelligence and we look at some of the skills that are really um, valuable, whether that's collaboration or curiosity, I mean, there are things that we can do to build a skill set or enhance, increase our quote unquote CQ. Um, so I think thinking about those, that is certainly a piece of it. Um, you know, a couple more practical things. I mean, if we're really talking about somebody who is on a very practical level, seeking to shift into a global role. I mean, I think that being open to um, this work and this market, as many of us know, is is very uh, is very high demand. And I think um, being open and keeping an open mindset. And so, for instance, even taking on more regional roles within a global organization could be a way to sort of make that entry point. Um, I think relationships are, are critical as well. And I, again, I'm speaking on a very, very practical level now, if there's someone out there who is actually seeking to make that shift, I think um, developing relationships and connecting with individuals and thinking about how can you develop your sort of competencies around inclusive leadership and, and those sorts of things is always helpful. But I think a lot of it actually begins with um, having your own understanding of cultural humility and cultural intelligence as you seek out these opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to give this uh, analogy. I went into a bookstore recently in London and I, I just, you walk in and it had all these sections, but in each section, the books relating to that particular region were a mix of formal and non-formal. So there were, sorry, there was non-fiction and fiction. And it was an interesting mindset shift for me because very often when you walk into a travel section, for example, in a bookstore, here where I am in Seattle, it's more guidebooks, right? And what I liked about this mix is that it gave me a reframing <clears throat> of this work, that it is a mix of those frameworks and those lessons and things that we've learned and solidified, but also the stories that come that 
don't necessarily have those hard, very particular lessons that you think that you can just follow and check off. It is about the pieces that are filled in in between. And I like to encourage us to think about people the same way. Instead of thinking of people as here's somebody that I'm adding to my panel that brings a black or white or brown perspective. What about somebody who brings a dual perspective and inviting them to share? And I mentioned earlier that my background is in education. And one of the most interesting things that I learned on my pathway is that even the way we look at education, there's formal education. So those are the formal institutions that some of us went to. And then there's non-formal education, which is what you learn uh, just through your experiences. And then there's informal education, which is what you commit to throughout your learning journey. So really a culture of um, continuous learning. And so when we look at cultural shifting from cultural competence to cultural humility, I encourage us to do that outside of our nine to five, outside of our day-to-day -day jobs, how we perhaps parent, how we build relationships with others, and create space for that natural conversation to happen. Not everything, and Andre, you've done a great job here, is we're not following a script, right? It's not like five minutes here, five minutes there. And I've seen conversations happen that way where you almost try to pack every single minute with a point that you want someone to come away with when very often our lessons are housed in that natural space that we create for each other and with each other through that humanization. Yeah, I, I appreciate both of what you shared, Jaya and Dia. I think Priya, going back to your question about why people are kind of still on cultural competence, I think they, they confuse cultural competence with cultural knowledge. And so if you're familiar with the CQ framework from the CQ Center from David Livermore's shop, um, cultural knowledge is a lot of what we talk about inside of cultural competency. And so that's the that's what I think the biggest distinction is, is that if we could reposition the notion of cultural competency as cultural knowledge, we'll know that it's incomplete because it's only one part of the puzzle when you're talking about strategy and action. And um, what's the other one? Strategy, action, uh knowledge and uh strategy and what's the last one you all action yeah and so i think if we think about it like that and puts us in a in a different mindset about what cultural competence is versus having to do this language shift to cultural humility because some people might not be familiar with it but cultural competence is what people want, is they want more knowledge about particular cultures that they might interact with on a regular basis. You're muted, Amory. I'm sorry. Also along the lines of what uh, Dia was saying, I think it was a beautiful story. I love that story. And now I wanna, I was just in London a couple of days ago. Now I have to go into a bookstore. Um, my, my wife was born in, in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, but her parents are Spanish immigrants. So you can imagine, you know, they and they speak to a dialect of Spanish as well as uh, uh, the Spanish that we can that we consider um, the Spanish mostly of South America. So they 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 speak Castellan, they speak Gallego, and they speak French. And so you have all this going on all at the same time. And in my home. There's four languages spoken. So my wife speaks French to the kids. My kids speak Swiss German to each other. Um, my 
in-laws speak Spanish to the kids. My wife uses all of them sometimes in the same sentence. And I speak American. And so I've had to take what I've learned over time to realize that all of those contexts are happening around me simultaneously. How can I sit in the middle of them, not c capture one of them and make one of them more sacrosanct or right than the others, particularly my own, and still be able to center them all and make sense of it with, with, my, with my family and, and uh, doing the same with my clients. So that's, the, that's that space is can you take all this in and then make sense together and know that you're still going to get it wrong sometimes and you're still going to laugh and realize that you were totally off the mark, but that's part of the journey. Can we have enough humility and grace when we do make those mistakes, build enough trust uh, that we can make those mistakes and, and, and not cancel each other, whether it's in our families or, or uh, in our communities online or, or with, our, with, our, with our clients. So that, that's kind of how I make that distinction. And I think language is hard when you have an industry language. And that's what we've done sometimes. Can we make that language accessible to others who might not be as familiar with these terms as we are? Right. Well, uh, <clears throat> thank you for for having this conversation. This is really, really great. It gives people an insight as to the intricacies of doing this work, um, regardless of whether you're within a local organization doing global work or or just a global organization looking at EDI from from different perspectives. And uh, I want to thank the three of you on behalf of Priya and I. And uh, I just want to close off by uh, just everyone just shouting out and, and telling us where we can find you uh, in the social world and, the, and the, you know, talking about yourselves and just tell us where, where we can find you. So, Jaya, start it off. Sure. Thanks, everyone. Amri, that was a fantastic, beautiful story about your household and family. I loved hearing it. So appreciate you sharing. I'm on most social media. Um, channels out there. So LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, um, you can find me there uh, pretty easily. And so feel free to connect. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the, from, for me, I'm also on most social media channels, mostly LinkedIn and Twitter and on my website, uh, globalidea.co. So uh, you can find me at inclusionwins.com and uh, on LinkedIn, Omri B. Johnson. I think there's only one. So uh, please, uh, please look at that. And also on amazon.com or whatever bookseller that you use online <laughs> uh, where you can find Reconstructing Inclusion as well. All right. Thank you, everyone, for this. Uh, it was great. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch soon and hopefully... Uh, everyone out there listening will uh, join us for our next conversation. Thanks, everyone, and uh, hope you have a great day and a great weekend. And of course, long weekend as we're taping this for a lot of people. So thank you very much. Thanks, Priya. Thanks, Andre, Jaya, Thea. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. everyone. This was great. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.